Well, thanks to countless Bible drills when I was growing up, whenever I hear 2 Corinthians 5, two ideas, two verses come immediately to mind. The first one is verse 1. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we will have an eternal dwelling place in the heavens made by the hands of God. And then there's the second verse, verse 17, which is in next week's scripture. So if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Everything old has passed away, and see, everything has become new. It's that first verse about earthly things passing away and eternal things waiting for us in the heavens as well as those lines a little further down about what is mortal being swallowed up by life and that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. These are some of the back pocket verses for comfort after a death of a loved one that every pastor, every Christian perhaps, knows. They know those. They were some of my papa's treasured verses that he used to provide a theological framework for making sense of pain and grief and loss experienced by the countless people he pastored over many decades. And it was a framework that Papa both used with me and taught to me as an 11-year-old when my other grandfather died of a heart attack on the evening after my 11th birthday party. We had been at a picnic as a family down by the river somewhere in Forsyth County, and I got to choose KFC fried chicken and biscuits for lunch. But as we were getting ready to go that night, my grandmother called and said granddaddy had had a heart attack and had to go to the hospital. And so for the longest time, I talked with my papa that I was afraid it was my choice of fried chicken and biscuits that my granddaddy had had a heart attack or that it was because of something I had done or my grandfather, my granddaddy had done that meant he died. And Papa did not explain to me how coronary disease works and how heart attacks and heart disease happens. That wasn't my question. My question was, how can I tell granddaddy I'm sorry that he died? And I love him, and I miss him. And so Papa talked to me about the larger life that all of us are held in, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and it is the Lord who creates and holds the larger life of this life where we know and experience sadness and pain, but also the life that is to come, where granddaddy is more fully. And that I could say what I needed to say to granddaddy. Could tell him I loved him. Could tell him I missed him. And that he would hear me. So Papa's framework, the reframe of the larger life, has been something that has stayed with me and has shaped who I am as a person who has loved and lost people, and as a pastor, that the larger life is what holds us all in death or in life. 
and I think is what Paul is trying to get at when he's talking about those who believe in Christ, not perishing, but having eternal life. Similar to the way John's gospel puts it. As we talked about at Free For All on Tuesday, if something is eternal, then there's not a starting point of eternity. Eternity holds both past and present and future. Eternity is about timelessness. It's about always. So with all due respect to the Reverend E.A. Hoffman, whose hymn in the Broadman hymnal hammers home the question, where will you spend eternity? Eternity is not something that begins at death, but something that's already here, though in part. I would rephrase the hymn's question to say, how are you living the already but not yet eternal life with God that is here and now? But that's a lot harder to sing. (laughs) But it is a great comfort to know that our troubles and sorrows will not follow us after we die. I'm not minimizing that in the least. I give thanks to God for that truth. However, that belief should not distract us from addressing the whys behind the troubles and sorrows that follow us and all creation around right now. For the Holy Spirit does not give us a spirit of timidity, but of boldness to live the life we are living with courage and integrity and to use our beings ourselves, our bodies, our minds, and our spirits in the service of God in the world. These are some of humanity's timeless issues and questions. The struggle was real to the Corinthians, and it's just as real now. Are we spirits trapped in a physical body? Or are we physical bodies with a spirit within. It was this dualism between spirit and physical body that Paul sought to address in this section of 2 Corinthians. Because it seemed to him that the Corinthians were drifting towards a Christianized Gnosticism. To hang with me, it's a Greek word. Which means they're beginning to interpret the Holy Spirit through a traditional Greek way of thinking, spirit versus matter, soul versus body. You were one or the other. And the spirit and soul needed to be liberated from the evil desires and trappings of the physical mortal body. Gnostics believe that a person is a spark of the divine spirit to begin with. And that this divine essence is trapped in a physical, mortal body, which causes the divine self to forget its true nature, that it is spirit. And so salvation was taught as a release from the body, a release from the world, so that nothing was more important than the soul salvation, the freedom of the soul to escape the body. 
Salvation was about knowledge, knowing who the self really is, where it came from, and how to get back to its original state of free spirit. Norman Greenbaum sums up this Gnostic worldview perfectly, I think, in his 1969 song, Spirit in the Sky. Some of y'all may know that. I will not sing it. But he says, prepare yourself. You know you must. you got to have a friend in Jesus. So you know that when you die, he's going to recommend you to the spirit in the sky. That's where you're going to go when you die. You're going to go to the place that's the best. Now clearly Norman Greenbaum probably wasn't reading 2 Corinthians when he wrote that song. But it's a similar understanding that the Holy Spirit is this confirmation of knowledge. The Corinthians thought they could be saved by knowing they had the Spirit. That all there was to being Christian was just knowing, head knowledge, intellect. So how easy is that? If all you have to do is know it, how comfortable is that? Except that's not at all what Paul meant. Paul's task to the Corinthians in this section of the letter was to clarify and correct the misunderstandings in Corinth about what happens when you receive the Holy Spirit. But he's not denying the experience of the Spirit. He has to walk a very fine line. So he goes back to Jesus where Jesus taught his disciples that the Holy Spirit, the Advocate, would be coming to them after he ascended, continuing that work in them of ministry, of love, and reconciliation and healing. Paul says nobody receives this gift of the Holy Spirit privately. It's a divine power, divinely given, not just a superhuman power. And it's the beginning of life, not the signal that you've reached the end. It's the Holy Spirit empowering you to live life fully, to live the larger life. Not about a life that awaits you when you die. The Holy Spirit is not just the ticket we need to get to heaven, but a force field, a power structure in which all who follow the way of Jesus operate in the world. The Holy Spirit is the power that is both outside of us and within us. It's the conscience raiser. It's the hand on the back of our necks that guides us to be and do more than we can be and do on our own. The Holy Spirit is this energy that fills the larger life, then challenges us to recognize salvation is not just about personal decisions. It's also about interconnection. It's about what happens to you mattering to me and what happens to me mattering to you. Remembering those metaphors Paul used last week and from Matthew's Gospel, where Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. God's people are to be salt 
and light for all the nations to receive salvation. It's about the larger life that is around us right now, as well as what awaits us at the completion of our mortal and earthly lives. This means salvation, as Jesus embodied it and Paul taught it, has to do with bodies and what happens to them right now, in this life and in the life to come. Just a few examples. That living the larger life compels us to care and care deeply about what is happening to the environment and to take steps to ensure there is a world worth living in, not just for the children around us, but the children in the Marshall Islands whose homes are already being flooded by sea level rise, and children in rural Mexico and countries around the equator who used to live in tropical climates with plenty of water, but are now in places that look more like arid deserts. And the children in nations around the Arctic Circle, whose homes are experiencing heat waves and wildfires because the permafrost and the glaciers are melting away. Living the larger life compels us to be involved in the complex issues of housing insecurity and poverty right here in Henderson County, literally in our own backyard, and to broaden our understanding of the gospel beyond an individual relationship with Jesus to include practicing Jesus's call for compassion, hospitality, and justice, caring about the physical, spiritual, and mental health of all of God's children, particularly the ones most vulnerable. Living the larger life compels us to do justice, to love mercy, and walk humbly with God right now, to act with faith, hope, and love right now, because there's too much at stake now not to. Living the larger life means cheerfully pleasing God is the main thing. Not worrying about exile or homecoming, who's in or who's out. Let that be our aim. Because this life, as I was reminded this week after attending the funeral, the celebration homegoing of a sister of a dear friend, that this life can be both beautiful and cruel. How we can laugh from the depths of our being and break with unforeseen pain and loss. There is no promise that living will be filled with ease and simplicity, but we are assured that in Christ, the larger life is at work, and so we do not lose heart. It may seem at times that we are like the man who was blind and brought to Jesus. We are begging for the ability to see our way forward, but it's just not clear. Or sometimes it's fuzzy and people look like trees walking around. Sometimes healing happens in the way we would like 
and sometimes it doesn't. But to live the larger life means we live and walk by faith that more is at work than we can see. For after all, it's not about seeing or even comprehending or knowing. It's about cheerfully pleasing God. May that be our daily choice, our constant aim, and our highest call. Amen.